Hello and welcome to Reard Primary View, where we cover the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy, and feature discussions on issues affecting distressed debt, leverage finance, direct lending, high yield bonds, high yield municipals, covenants, private credit, and middle market companies. I'm David Zupkis. This week, Hong Wen from Reard's Municipals team speaks to Cooper Howard, Director and Fixed Income Strategist at the Schwab Center for Financial Research, about how recent events in the banking world have affected the municipal bond market. In our weekly review coverage, National City Media files Chapter 11 amid advertising fight with Center World, office properties diversified healthcare merge amid ongoing commercial REIT uncertainty, Tupperware brands Transocean, Bedbath & Beyond eye potential restructurings, and Reorg takes a deep dive into Sinclair Broadcast Group and Claris Mortgage Trust. And always a preview of what's coming next week. It's Monday, April 17th. Welcome back to another episode of the Reorg Prime Review podcast. I am Huang Nguyen, a reporter on the Municipals team, and I'm pleased to have Cooper Howard joining me this afternoon. Cooper is a director and fixed income strategist for the Schwab Center for Financial Research. He is responsible for providing analysis and investor education on fixed income markets with a focus on the municipal market. Before his current role, Cooper worked as a senior fixed income specialist assisting Schwab clients in constructing fixed income portfolios and trading fixed income securities. On today's podcast, we're going to discuss how the recent developments in the banking world, such as the Silicon Valley's banks collapse and the ongoing Federal Reserve's policies have impacted the municipal bond market. Once again, welcome Cooper and thank you for speaking with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to join you. Awesome. Um, so I've seen that the first quarter of 2023 has witnessed a lot of turmoil in the banking industry. Um, could you please walk us through the various movements that you've seen in the Muni's market since January? Yeah, so for the municipal bond market, we really kind of sat to the sidelines while all of the volatility in the treasury market and the banking sector was going on. So. I think that that alludes to the reason that many people like to purchase municipal bonds. They tend to be low volatility, high credit quality, and then provide tax advantaged income. So if we just look at kind of what happened, I think what happened in the banking sector, it was much more of a rates driven story than a credit driven story, at least as it applies to the municipal market. So looking back to March 8th, that's really when things all really started. Um, A lot of the volatility was on the short end of the yield curve, especially for the treasury market. If we look at munis, um, they were only down about 60 basis points from uh, February 10th through March 8th. Whereas if you look at the treasury market, they were down about 100 basis points. So munis moved little less than half of the volatility that treasury saw over that same time frame. That really pushed valuations a little bit. And where I would say valuations are leaning right now is they're not too attractive. And one of the metrics that we look at when we look at um, valuations for the muni market, is called the muni to treasury ratio. Sometimes some people refer to it as the MOB spread, the MOB spread, the municipals over bond spread. And what that is, is it's the yield on a AAA rated municipal bond relative to that of a treasury of equal maturity. Right now for the 10 year tenure, we're at about a mid 60s or so. That compares to a mid 80s as the five-year average. So we're leaning a little bit below where we historically have been right now. So 
I think going forward, that could potentially be a headwind for returns. I don't necessarily think that the fallout from SVB or kind of the turmoil in the banking sector that we've seen poses much of a headwind to municipal bonds. Now, one area that we could see this story play out is banks paring back their purchases of municipal bonds. So banks usually are very large purchasers of municipal bonds. In fact, they're the third largest purchaser behind individual investors and then mutual funds and ETFs. And we've already started to see bank ownership um, pair of munis pare back a little bit. Uh, for example, it's down 8% from the fourth quarter of 2022 to the fourth quarter of 2021. But I don't think that that's because of the banking sector crisis or the issues in the banking sector. I think it goes back to the rates story and the relative yield. So I mentioned earlier that it's a little bit of an unattractive um, point in the mini market for yield. I think that's really why we've seen banks pare back a little bit on their purchases, not really because of concerns over another potential fallout there. Mm. So you're saying it's more of a rates story than a credit quality story and credit quality has, I guess, re- relatively stable um, in the past quarter that, that we've seen. That's correct. And I would even go a step further as I would say that um, it's not just stable, it's fairly strong um, mm-hmm. in terms of broad credit quality. Now, it's difficult to apply a broad brush to the municipal bond market. It's about $3.6, $3.7 trillion right. large with many different types of issuers, 50 different states plus U.S. territories. So they all operate under different constitutions and legal requirements. But if we were to paint a broad brush for the muni market, then again, I'd say that credit quality is very strong. And that's because coming off of the back of COVID, COVID really impacted um, with the finances of lower rated individuals much more than the finances of higher rated individuals. And the implication for especially states is that their revenue surged because of that. So many high income earners saw their incomes increase combined with stock market gains, they saw their incomes increase. So states like California, for example, which tend to tax high income earners um, as well as have a reliance on capital gains taxes, they saw their revenues um, move to very strong levels. In fact, if we look at it, income taxes, income revenues, um, revenues from income taxes, I should say, are near record level highs. Sales tax revenues are near record level highs. Um, Business income taxes, they're also near record level highs. So this has gone a long way to bolster state and local government credit quality. Um, One way we can look at this is the amount of funds that they've deposited into their rainy day funds or budget stabilization. This is akin to a savings account that if a state gets into financial difficulty, they can tap into that and help smooth their revenues. And these have reached near record level highs. So again, I think that uh, credit quality, I take it a step further. It's probably at its, um, probably peaked so far. We're starting to see signs of deterioration, but I think because of how strong it has been, that shouldn't translate into near-term credit deterioration. Gotcha. So despite being somewhat shielded from recent events, like you've just explained to us, what are some specific pockets of concerns within the Muni's market right now? Yeah, so a pocket of concern, I would say, is the healthcare and hospital sector. 
Now, to begin, this is already a sector that is a little bit lower rated relative to the rest of the immunity market. For example, about two-thirds of the municipal bond market is either AA or AAA rated. That's the highest credit quality that you can get. That compares to just one-fourth, 27% of the healthcare sector being AA rated. And about a fifth of the healthcare sector, so one out of every five issuers, are going to be the bottom rung of investment grade, triple B rated quality, credit quality. And this was really a sector that already faced many difficulties as a result of COVID. So once COVID hit, um, they had to cancel elective surgeries. Elective surgeries, they tend to be very profitable for healthcare and hospital facilities. So they saw their revenues slip a little bit. And then coming out of COVID, they've still experienced difficulties um, similar to other business-like enterprises. So I think it's important to note that there's differences between the healthcare sector and many other municipalities. So the healthcare sector, for example, they have to compete for um, client base. They also have to compete for labor um, issues. Whereas if you look at something like a bond that's backed by property taxes, it really doesn't have to compete for any clientele or any revenue in that sense. So a lot of the problems that healthcare and hospital sectors, I would say, are facing right now, they stem from labor costs, increased labor costs, increased um, shortages there. So if we look nationally, just at the overall national picture for employment, right now there's about 1.7 job openings for every unemployed individual that's out there. So I'd argue that's a pretty tight labor market. And because healthcare and hospital sector have to compete for labor costs, they're seeing an increase in their labor costs. So that could also be a potential headwind for them going forward. Another headwind is just the, high the higher interest rate environment that we've seen lately. So this would likely limit capital improvements, could potentially limit investments. So I think that for the broad municipal bond market, again, probably on solid footing, but the area that I'd navigate a little bit with more concern is the healthcare and hospital sector. Mm. So what do you think about um, senior living, like the CCRCs? Do you see a similar outlook for, for this sector compared with uh, healthcare? I see a similar outlook there. And I think that, again, the issue that faces healthcare of higher labor costs and difficulty with the labor situation still applies, applies to CCRCs. So that's another one to where revenues may come in okay, but their expenses and increased expenses should probably put pressure on their margins, which for a bondholder, that provides less flexibility. So that's a negative on that sense. Um, those that I'd be a little bit more concerned with are probably those that are already lower rated. They would have less financial flexibility to kind of navigate through the difficulties going forward. Um, so kind of switching gears for a little bit, it seems like the Muni's market has been slower in the past few weeks as we go into the second quarter of the year. And I've just been seeing more remarketing deals uh, for bonds dated back to 2013 or 2014. Um, why is that the case in the current climate? I think that part of the reason why is we're trying to find um, kind of footing with all of the fallout from the SVB crisis. And I don't think that it's really a major concern for the muni market, but it did create some rate volatility, 
um, especially on a day-by-day basis. So I think that that's one of the reasons why you're seeing some of these remarketings come out. Um, I would expect that this is just a temporary phenomenon. Uh, eventually, the market will kind of find its footing and things should normalize going forward. Got it. Um, in my own reporting lately, I've also come across quite a few more uh, bond issuances getting ESG designations. What do you think uh, the significance of such a designation is for bond issuers as well as prospective investors? Yeah, so that's no surprise that you've seen an increase in it because overall there has been an increase in the amount of ESG or environmental, social, and governance um, labeled bonds that are coming into the muni market. Um, However, it still represents a pretty small portion of the overall muni market. What I think is important for ESG investing is to distinguish between the use of the proceeds and where the revenues are and the source of the funds themselves. So the use of the proceeds are going to something that would be labeled as green, social, or sustainable, and there's kind of differences between each of those categories. Whereas the source of the funds from a bondholder's perspective and a credit quality perspective, that's ultimately the most important thing to be aware of because that's going to dictate a lot of um, credit rating, potential for defaults, likelihood that you'll be paid back on time, et cetera. But one other thing that I'd be cautious about on the ESG front that we've kind of seen an uptick of is uh, labeling of ESG or green bonds. So about 41% of all green bonds are self-identified, self-labeled as being green. So there's a potential for what's known as greenwashing. Maybe the use of those funds Uh, use of the proceeds aren't actually going to a green project or something that might be a little bit of a stretch to argue that it's a green project. So if you're investing in ESG bonds, be aware of that, that even though it's labeled ESG, you need to look under the hood a little bit to determine, is this truly, these proceeds, are they truly going to something that is considered ESG or fits what you as a personal investor kind of value. The other thing that I'd be cautious of is if we look at yield relative to the rest of the municipal bond market, um, right now, ESG-labeled bonds lean a little bit rich. So relative to comparable alternatives, the yields are slightly lower. So you're giving up Mm -hmm. some yield by purchasing an ESG-rated bond or ESG-labeled bond, I should say, excuse me. Um, One of the reasons why I think that is, is the supply and demand dynamic. So there has been a lot of demand, a lot of interest in ESG-labeled issuers. However, the supply is very small. Like I mentioned earlier, it's really only 6.5% of the overall municipal bond market. Uh, Largest issuers of ESG-labeled bonds are California and New York. That's not too surprising because those are the two largest issuers of municipal bonds to begin with. But where California and New York bonds are kind of trading in the broad market, they're trading very close to AAA rated levels, even though those two states aren't AAA rated. Um, It gets into some of the tax concerns of because they have high uh, high state income taxes, why that's trading that way. But the general gist is that you are seeing lower yields for ESG labeled bonds relative to those of the rest of the market. So For investors, be cautious that you may not be investing in something that is ESG labeled. So look under the hood, 
and then be aware that you might be giving up some form of yield. But if you kind of take all of those facts in culmination, you say still say, well, I am using my money to go towards a cause that I value, then I think that that absolutely makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually didn't know that um, like uh, an issuer or borrower can self-identify their bonds with the ESG label, I thought, you know, they, they would be seeking like a, a third party opinion um, on the matter. So that's that's news to me. Yeah, I think when you get a third party opinion, it very much helps. And um, there's kind of a few major third party opinion um, providers that are out there. So I think that the market looks at those and values those more than something that's self-labeled as being a green bond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think that's really all of my questions for you today, Cooper. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to share with us? Any closing remarks? No, I really appreciated being on. So thank you very much for having me. Yeah, well, thank you again, Cooper, uh, for sharing your insights with us this afternoon. I really appreciate it. For this week's in-court coverage, we take a look at FTX Group, National City Media, LTL Management, Diamond Sports Group, and Voyager Digital. The FTX Group debtors outlined an aspirational roadmap for their Chapter 11 cases at a hearing last Wednesday, saying that they aim to file a preliminary plan of reorganization in July and a disclosure statement in the fourth quarter. Debtors are targeting DSM plan confirmation hearings in the first and second quarters of 2024. Debtors Council also reported that FTX has recovered approximately $6.2 billion in cash and digital assets, increased by $800 million since January. FTX's attorneys said the debtors continue to consider reopening their primary exchanges, the international FTX.com platform and the U.S.-based FTX.us platform. National Cine Media LLC, or NCM, owner of the largest cinema advertising network in North America, filed for Chapter 11 on April 11th and received authorization for consensual use of cash collateral at a first-day hearing last Wednesday. NCM has signed an RSA with two-thirds of prepetition secured creditors and non-debtor parent NCM Inc., or NCMI, which would equitize all prepetition secured debt. Secured creditors and MCI would share in pre-dilution reorganized equity at an 86.2% to 13.8% split. NCM aims to assume all cinema advertising contracts, including exhibitor services agreements with Cinemark USA, Inc., AMC, and Regal Cinema, Inc., the exhibitor services agreements between NCM and Regal is a major sticking point in both bankruptcies, and both sides have now agreed to mediate the Regal ASA fight. Bankruptcy Judge Christopher Lopez will serve as mediator. Johnson & Johnson subsidiary LTL Management appeared in court for a first-day hearing in New Jersey after filing its second Chapter 11 case last week. LTL's counsel said that its proposal to resolve tout claims, under which the company would fund $8.9 billion of net present value into a trust over 25 years, is supported by over 60,000 tout claimants. However, several groups of top claimants told the court that LTL is trying to gin up numbers to create the illusion of support for the settlement proposal in a bid to prop up Johnson & Johnson's stock price. LTL's pivot from a $61 billion funding agreement from Johnson & Johnson to an $8.9 billion funding agreement immediately before the second Chapter 11 is a $50 billion fraudulent transfer, the largest in United States history, the ad hoc committee of top claimants argued. The dissenting top claimants said that LTL's second case should be dismissed. Judge Christopher Lopez has set a final evidentiary hearing for May 31st on emergency motions to compel payment of broadcast rights fees filed by Major League Baseball and three clubs in the Diamond Sports Group bankruptcy. The outcome is 
is key to negotiations between the debtors and Major League Baseball over direct-to-computer rights to Major League Baseball games, a key issue for the debtors' go-forward business plan in RSA, which requires the debtors to reach deals with Major League Baseball and their other league partners. Last Tuesday, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit denied the Voyager debtors' motion to vacate a stay of the confirmation order for lack of jurisdiction. As a result, the confirmation order remains stayed while the U.S. government's appeal of the Voyager plan is pending. Club Core, Tupperware Brands, Transocean, Garrett Motion, Bed Bath & Beyond round out this week's list of potential restructurings. Club Core has designated two entities as an unrestricted subsidiary after confidential negotiations between the company and an ad hoc group of lenders ended without an amend and extend deal. The owner and operator of private golf stadium and city clubs and negotiated and agreed on a refinancing with certain lenders featuring a coupon boost, tightened debt documents, and sponsor Apollo Global Management effectively contributing cash and unrestricted assets to the restricted group. But more lenders signed NDAs afterwards and asked for a bigger margin uplift in fees, leading to the negotiations breaking down. Tupperware Brands said it has engaged financial advisors to help improve its capital structure and remediate its doubts regarding its ability to continue as a going concern. The board of directors and management are working to improve capital structure and near-term liquidity, and financial advisors have been engaged to assist in securing supplemental financing from potential advisors or financing partners. In addition, the company is reviewing its real estate portfolio for property available for potential dispositions or sale leaseback transactions and is exploring right-sizing efforts, monetization of fixed assets, cash management, and marketing and channel optimization. One of Transocean's wholly owned subsidiaries entered into an agreement with a holder of $213.4 million of principal of its 2.5% senior guaranteed exchangeable bonds through 2027, pursuant to which the holder agreed to exercise its rights to exchange all of its bonds for shares of the company in exchange for nominal cash consideration. Garrett Motion announced that it reached agreements with investors Centerbridge and Oaktree to simplify its capital structure via the conversion of its Series A preferred stock into common stock on or about July 3rd. As part of the capital structure transformation, Garrett Motion said it would repurchase $570 million of the preferred stock from each of Centerbridge and Oaktree at a market-based price without premium and provide for reduction in governance rights as well as lockup and other agreements. The company said it intends to obtain $700 million of new debt to fund repurchases. Bed Bath & Beyond met the conditions containing its Fourth Amendment to its credit agreement, which included the requirements to receive minimum specified equity proceeds or demonstrate the minimum cumulative specified equity proceeds. The credit agreement amendment required the company raising minimum amounts of common equity capital on a weekly basis through June. Reorganitiated coverage this week on Office Properties Income Trust after Office Properties Income Trust and Diversified Healthcare Trust announced an all-stock merger agreement with Office Properties Income Trust being the surviving company. Reorg estimates that the combined business would have generated $475 million in EBITDA in 2022. In their announcement of the merger, the company stated they will substantially reduce the amount paid in dividends on a combined basis after together burning a Reorg estimated approximately $493 million of cash flow after dividends in 2022. Also in new coverage by Reorg, Lionsgate aims to spin off its cash-generative studio business from its cash-negative Stars Network business by the end of September. The credit facility, $1.27 billion as of December 31st, would travel with the studio business, and the unsecured notes, $857.6 million as of December 31st, would remain with the Stars business. The spinoff would involve a refinancing of the credit facility, potentially incurring additional debt to facilitate unsecured note repurchases and fund growth with Stars. The studio business generated $256.7 million of pre-tax simple free cash flow in the last 12-month period, and the Stars business burned $634.4 million of pre-tax simple ECF. 
In new advisory news, an ad hoc group of lenders to sound inpatient physicians is working with Paul Weiss as legal advisor as the physician services provider grapples with a 2025 debt maturity, negative free cash flow because of low reimbursement revenue, debt service payments, and elevated labor costs. The company's $75 million revolving credit facility matures in June. The first thing lenders to Resolute Investment Managers, an Irving, Texas-based asset management firm, have hired Gibson Dunn as legal counsel and Ducera as financial advisor in light of the looming 2024 $552 million first lien debt maturity. The lenders have signed non-disclosure agreements. The two firms are advising the company on options to refinance its loans as lower stock prices and assets under management have translated to lower fees for the company. The company is being advised by Evercore and Debevoice. Greg published an in-depth analysis of Sinclair Broadcast Group and Claris Mortgage Trust this week. According to Greg's analysis of Sinclair's April 3rd announcement of an internal reorganization, the internal reorganization would create a new top co-holding company, Sinclair Inc., and transfer hundreds of millions of dollars in assets to new unrestricted subsidiary Sinclair Ventures. Sinclair states the reorganization is intended to drive shareholder value through an unburdened, publicly traded parent company and owner of its other assets available for debt or equity financing. However, the transactions would decrease credit support provided to current Sinclair debt holders and potentially complicate hypothetical recoveries from transferred assets that Diamond Sports Group's creditors may look at as a source of recovery in that bankruptcy. Rear's analysis of Claris Mortgage's credit documents appears to allow the company the ability to move around mortgage loans through the organization, perhaps to the detriment of the company's term loan. The company has relied on multiple forms of financing in addition to the term loan, including repurchase agreements, pooling of minority interests that are sold in participation agreements, and notes payable that are term matched to the underlying mortgage loans. Therefore, it's possible, according to Reorg, that if mortgage loans were transferred from subsidiary guarantors to non-guarantor entities, the term loan's collateral support from those mortgage loans would be reduced. To access Reorg's full in-depth coverage of Sinclair and Claros, please reach out to a Reorg representative. Top Red Stories this week included Supreme Court to consider reviewing PG&E ultra postpetition interest decisions. Debtors urge court to discard solvent debtor exception, bar postpetition interest for unsecured creditors in all cases. Litigation coverage. Cisco says arbitration injunction secured by litigation funder Burford violates fundamental public policy, seeks to consolidate vacature proceeding with broiler chicken antitrust MDL. Supreme Court considers reviewing Fifth Circuit ruling dramatically limiting plan exculpation highlighting case. Litigation coverage. Court orders DBMP case parties to mediate asbestos claimants preview motion dismiss Texas two-step case. And now here's Kate Thomas from New York with the week ahead. Hi, this is Kate Thomas, and here are some highlights of the week ahead. On Tuesday, the LTL debtor will be back in court seeking a preliminary injunction to halt litigation against its, quote, protected parties, unquote, including ultimate parent Johnson & Johnson. The debtor entered bankruptcy having reached a planned support agreement with representatives of over 60,000 TALC claimants. Under the terms of the agreement, debtor parent Johnson & Johnson Hold Co. would fund an almost $9 billion trust for the benefit of TALC claimants who would not oppose an injunction of TALC claim litigation in the tort system. The debtor warns that without injunctive relief, the proliferation of litigation would cause immediate and irreversible harm and drain its resources. Moving to Wednesday, the Aerotechnologies debtors will be defending their Chapter 11 cases from motions to dismiss filed by the Official Committee of Combat Arms Earplug Claimants and the Official Committee of Respirator Claimants. 
the committees maintained that the debtors are not in financial distress and only filed their cases as part of a litigation tactic designed by non-debtor parent 3M to avoid multi-district litigation. The debtors respond that their cases should not be dismissed because the combat arms earplug claims are, quote, textbook examples, unquote, of mass tort litigation that is best resolved in bankruptcy. Trying more than 200,000 claims in the tort system would take decades, the debtors assert, and there is no reasonable possibility of settlement outside of a Chapter 11 plan that can bind opt-outs and address unidentified claimants. Also on Wednesday, the Diamond Sports debtors are scheduled to be in court for their second day hearing. The debtors face objections to their final cash collateral order from the Major League Baseball Commissioner and eight clubs who contend that the proposed cash collateral budget provides for ordinary course payment of some administrative expenses, but not the club's broadcasting rights fees. The parties also filed emergency motions to compel payment of overdue rights fees. However, Judge Christopher Lopez declined to consider these motions on an emergency basis instead scheduling it an evidentiary hearing on May 31st. Turning to Thursday, the Cinerol debtors will be in court seeking conditional approval of their disclosure statement for their plan, under which the debtors would reduce funded indebtedness by more than $4.5 billion. The plan framework mirrors the transactions contemplated by the debtors' restructuring support agreement and incorporates a global settlement with the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors. The debtors are also seeking authority to enter into financing commitment and backstop agreements for the proposed exit financing at Thursday's hearing, though Jeffries is reportedly exploring an exit financing alternative with an ad hoc group of lenders, according to sources. That's all for the week ahead. Have a great week, and back to you, David. Thank you again for tuning in to the REARG Primary Review and our weekly review. Find all our podcasts on the rear.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend, and see you next Monday.